So welcome everybody to the Club Soda podcast. I'm Laura Willoughby, founder of Club Soda, and I'm here with Drew. Drew, say hello. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm good. So Drew is the other co-founder and we're we're putting together all of our introductions and discussions around all of the podcasts we've got coming up, of which we have many because we recorded a lot of the output of the festival that we held in Brighton in mm-hmm. early July. And I know that many of you have asked if we recorded the panels, which were with some amazing people. And um, what's this discussion? So this discussion is one of our two keynote speakers at the festival um, on Saturday, we were joined by um, a long-term friend of Club Sodas, Veronica Valley, um, who's a psychotherapist. She'll be talking uh, with her in a future podcast. Um, but this one is from our Sunday uh, keynote session with the brilliant author and comedian Rosie Wilby, who was talking about her book, The Breakup Monologues, and everything that she's learned um, from her personal experiences of relationships ending and um, the podcast, The Breakup Monologues, uh, that she's been running um, for the past four seasons. Um, and we were delighted to have her along to the festival to talk about her experiences of um, breakups, how alcohol's turned up in her relationships, um, and kind of general advice for navigating change in relationships uh, in a way which is more mindful. I think we kind of Many of us have had this experience of kind of, you know, this we have this image, don't we, of relationships ending and drowning our sorrows um, and uh, as if that's going to fix anything at all apart from, you know, so it's going to give us a big hangover and we're still going to have a relationship that's ended. But so I found her conversation really useful just to think about how relationships do come to an end. That's a natural thing that happens. Um, and then how we move beyond that and and learn to be okay with that. I think it's uh, it's a really good subject, partly because um, lots of things change in your relationships when you might change your drinking, and it can seem like a very daunting thing. And so, to be able to think in more modern ways, actually, and and break the the rules that have been set for us by society is a really important thing to do and was absolutely something that was important for me when I gave up drinking. So I'm a bit of a fangirl here of <laughs> Rosie. So I hope you enjoy this talk too. So hello and welcome to the session at uh, Club Soda's Mindful Drinking Festival. Um, as, this, as well as this event here in Presuming Eds, um, do take some time today to go over to the open market, just a little bit up the road. If you haven't been already, there is an amazing array of different alcohol-free drinks of all types. We've got beers, wine, spirits, and all sorts of things which don't fit into any category at all. So if you, are, if you didn't know that you were in the market for an alcohol-free mead... Um, you can go and find one and uh, all sorts of things which are delicious to drink. Um, we've also got a programme of masterclasses on. Um, so uh, this afternoon, um, we've got two masterclasses going on, one at 2 and one at 3.30. There will be spaces for each of those. So if you want to dive more deeply um, into alcohol-free cocktail making or alcohol-free drinks generally, our final masterclass today is run by Jane Payton, who is something of an expert in the world of drinks. You're on School of Booze. Um, so do uh, do sign up for that. 
Um, this uh, festival is made uh, possible thanks to the support of our sponsors, Double Dutch, Premium Mixers and Tonics, Heineken Zero, Lies Alcohol-Free Spirits, and Naughty Alcohol-Free Sparkling Wines. Um, and just so you know that we're recording the audio from this, which will go out on our podcast. Um, so we will, there will be space for your questions and your reflections and comments. If you prefer not to be included in the podcast, let me know afterwards. We'll, we'll be chopping and editing and all sorts of things anyway, so we can happily chop around things if you don't want to go out into the world. Um, I am really, really delighted uh, to uh, welcome Rosie Wilby. Rosie is an award-winning comedian, author, podcaster, and frequent contributor to BBC Radio 4 programmes, including Women's Hour, Saturday Live, and Four Thought. Her first book, Monogamy, Is Monogamy Dead, was long-listed for a Polari First Book Prize um, and followed a tri- trilogy of solo shows investigating the psychology of love and relationships. Um, and her latest book, um, I said latest book rather than new book, because I Imagine that you might be on a roll and there might be another one coming at some point. So let's say I'm, latest. I'm hoping so. Yeah. <laughs> latest book, The Breakup Monologues, is based on a podcast of the same name. It's published by Bloomsbury and available now wherever books are sold. So welcome, Rosie. Um, so, Rosie, um, I, I'm aware that your book was born out of the podcast. And for anyone who hasn't listened, do subscribe and listen to it. It's great. Um, but I wonder, was there a moment in your life where you woke up and thought to yourself, I would really love to be known as the Queen of Breakups? How did, <laughs> how did all of this start for you? Yeah, I, it's a weird title, isn't it, that I was given by Radio 4 when I appeared on Saturday Live. That's what they decided to call me in the blurb about the programme. And I thought, that's a weird accolade, isn't it? Because if you're really good at breakups, are you really bad at making relationship choices in the first place? Um, and I suppose it all came out of me having had this pattern of somewhat compulsive and addictive serial monogamy and really being really drawn to that rollercoaster of the highs and lows of when you break up with somebody and then you emerge and reborn and transform yourself and reinvent yourself and I think there's a lot of very good energy within that process for feeling and growing and learning about what wasn't right in that relationship but then the, the big part of meeting somebody new and then maybe that doesn't work out and, and it's it's this real rollercoaster that I still see a lot of friends on and it can be incredibly addictive and compelling and actually I talk a bit in the book about how addicted to that cycle I was and how it's quite difficult when some friends are still on that now I'm really trying I've just got married everyone Um, so the book is really about staying in a relationship when you've been on that roller coaster and even though you know actually you've met a really great person and you're in a healthy and good relationship where you've brought all these skills that you've learned from getting over relationships into it and better communication and better knowledge of yourself but still there's a little part of you that misses the old highs and lows and how you navigate that really so I think I was very compelled by by breakups in fact I'll just read there's a tiny paragraph where I talk about how breakups continue to compel me so much in the uh, in the prologue and I say um, 
And that's its biggest breakups facilitate and maybe even necessitate transformation. In the wake of a separation, our peers allow us to reinvent ourselves. The rest of the time, they like us to stay fixed so they can move around and ahead of us. But heartbreak is the golden ticket that circumvents this bullshit. Renewed and reborn, standing at the edge of the echoing canyon of our former frustrations, we shout, this is who I am now. And we run and skip away from the parched carcasses of the old cells we've grown to hate. <laughs> I, so, think I, I think I highlighted the same passage when I was reading it. So yeah, that, that's uh, a bit I, I quite enjoyed writing. And I suppose a lot of the book is really being brutally honest about what being in a relationship is like and the highs and lows and the you know the little squabbles and arguments that you have as opposed to this sort of over-romanticized view of love and relationships that we see and hear about in all the films and songs and actually giving the sort of pretty reality of being in a relationship and trying to make it work when sometimes you're both in a foul mood or you know if you're both women in a relationship, perhaps you've got a hormonal cycle going on, which can impact things. I see uh, somebody nodding there. And, yeah, so I think um, there was a lot in breakups that really fascinated me because I had had so many and because I've been somewhat addicted to them and I wanted to look at what had been good about breakups and what I had learned in those times after a breakup and if I could still continue to keep actively learning and growing when you're in a relationship. And I joke, you know, surely it, it must be possible, mustn't it, or else all long-term couples would be codependent emotionally stunted weirdos. Is, is, is that not the case? I, I maybe well, I <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think there was a lot. And, and also, in those dark moments in, in life, there can be, after some time has passed, a bit of humour, and I was dumped... 10 years ago now from the relationship that really hurt me um, a great deal because it was a relationship surrounded by shame and secrecy um, I was dumped by email and at the time I thought that was really quite rude you know and a bit cold and of course now we have ghosting we have all these ways of letting someone know you're not that instant that are much more abrupt maybe an email is really quite quaint and polite but <laughs> <laughs> at the time I joked that I did feel much better once I corrected her spelling <laughs> and punctuation and changed the font <laughs> break up in windings is fun preference <laughs> fun. So, so yeah so that, that sort of is, sums up I guess my, my fascination and interest and my personal connection to break up yeah but, and actually and, and you mentioned this uh, in possible congratulations on getting married. In the book, you, you talk about before and after girlfriend, who is, I guess, now wife, yes. if you're using that kind of language. So so is that is that reframing how you think about some of the things that you wrote in the book? Or were you writing with, you know, this is an aspiration of, this is the kind of relationship that I want with the person, this is how it's going to go forward for the future and be as it is? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, um, the book is almost my own promise to myself, my own sort of manifesto for staying together and staying in in a healthier relationship and not sort of quitting, not escaping and not being on that addictive cycle of, of thinking, you know, because even the dating apps that we have now they perpetuate this idea that there could be someone better out there, there could be someone else, there could be someone exciting and thrilling, you know, it's a bit of a game, isn't it? And, you know, we upgrade our mobile phones every couple of years as well, don't we? Or at least we're given the option to if we want to. And I think there's this impatience to our modern culture now, which I think does make sort of settling 
into any kind of life or commitment to something that much more challenging because we're receiving all this information, all this messaging all the time about how we're supposed to be better in, in some way or be more successful or be richer or, uh, you know, all of these quite quite difficult messages that, that challenge our self-worth in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so one of the things you write about in the book is um, uh, something which um, I think a, a psychologist friend or colleague identified about seven big reasons for breakups. So you talk about sexual problems, including mismatched libidos and affairs, incompatibility around money, domestic issues arising from living together, drug and alcohol addiction, untreated mental health conditions, abuse, whether that's physical or verbal or emotional, um, and conflicts over autonomy and intimacy. And I was reading that and I was thinking, you know, you talk about uh, drug and alcohol problems in the middle of that. But actually, drugs uh, and alcohol especially get implicated in relationships in so many ways and can turn up, you know, in terms of the domestic issues, in terms of living together, um, sadly, in terms of abuse, in terms of untreated mental health problems, all sorts of different ways that, that alcohol can get implicated in relationships. But also, so many ways in which alcohol... Um, you know, for those people who who do drink, becomes you know part of the journey of getting to know someone, and actually the you know the, the kind of the classic, incredibly dull, shall we meet for drinks scenario. Um, you know, I get how that I get how it begins to play in the formation of relationships as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how alcohol's turned up for you in relationship, both kind of positive aspects, negative aspects. What you kind of observe about how alcohol's played out in your relationship history. Yeah, I, I mean, I think also coming from the LGBTQ um, scene as well, and I, I, I don't know if there are any fellow queers here. Hello. <laughs> Yay. Um, I think that plays a role as well, because I think traditionally within queer culture, there has been a culture of drinking in terms of how you socialise with people, how you date, how you meet people, and the, the spaces you can literally go to to be safe in are usually bars, they're usually clubs. Um, so I think there's been a real culture, certainly when I was first coming out in the 1990s, I know I don't look old enough, um, and when I was first coming out then, you know, there was this real culture that you, you know, you went to to bars and to clubs. So it was a real drinking culture to, you know, be able to meet people and, and have dates and, and that kind of thing. So, so yeah, you if you did get chatting to somebody or flirting with somebody, you, you probably had had a few drinks. Um, and yes, then maybe the next day you might. Think differently about your choices. <laughs> <laughs> I have never done that. That's the experience I want. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've had long-term relationships where, and certainly when I was younger, um, long-term relationships where perhaps my partner has, a, you know, a relationship with alcohol. But when you're in your twenties and you're young and you're having fun, and it's the 1990s and it was quite a fun time. It was all grip pop, and I was in a band then, which my partner was sort of some of the time in singing backing vocals, and you know we released an album and it was out in the shops. It was all super exciting, and so drugs and alcohol were just a part of that and partying. So I suppose I didn't really notice that you know her consumption of alcohol and drugs was 
excessive because it just seemed the norm, I suppose. And it was only really when there would be something really out of the ordinary, like pouring herself a large glass of brandy for breakfast, that I would think, oh, uh, hang on. <laughs> so, I mean, she's um, actually a wonderful friend who, you know, and I think this is another thing that's wonderful about, about the queer community and about some of the more kind of conscious relationship communities like the poly community and sex positive movement, is I think there's a greater appreciation of how your relationship can continue consciously after it has ended in that traditional relationship romantic narrative that we're sort of very familiar with. And so we've stayed friends for many, many years and she did sort of completely cut alcohol out of her life very successfully. So, um, you know, she now looks back on those times and it's a bit like, oh gosh. Um, but, you know, she, she um, yeah, so I think she realised there was something that she had to address and, and look at and um, but I think it, yeah I think when you're younger and you're part of a culture that is partying and fun it's almost harder to I mean I wish I'd sort of been more conscious of really talking to her about it but it was only really perhaps in the latter stages of the relationship where we weren't even getting on as well anyway to be able to talk hopefully about that but I sort of really became aware that there was something above you know everybody's kind of consumption of, of drugs and alcohol at that time. I mean, I think one of the things that I um, just observe in uh, the book we work with in Club Soda is that, you know, very often we do surround ourselves with socially and romantically with people who drink quite a lot like us, you know, because they're, they're easy company. You know, if, if you're a going to the pub person, you'll find another going to the pub person to be in a relationship with. And that can actually then start to put relationships under significant strain if one half of a couple changes. So if you are the, if you're the couple who's decided, actually, I need to get off this party wagon, um, I'm going to cut down significantly or I'm going to stop drinking completely, suddenly it can feel like you're pulling your relationship in separate directions. One of the analogies I, I use to kind of help, help people kind of take the emotional heat out of that is to think about, imagine that you and your partner really enjoy bell ringing and then you slowly over time develop tinnitus and suddenly suddenly hanging out with your partner while they're ringing bells it's not a thing that you're going to want to do particularly so you know there's some there's some navigation over this shared interest and activity that you've had you know because for many couples that can be you know drinking together can be our primary way of spending time connecting so I wonder what kind of experiences because you've spoken to so many people about how their relationships have ended and about quality of relationships what kind of insights have you got about you know for couples who do feel like their relationships are pulling in separate directions how do you begin to talk about that navigate that know when it's time to move on know when it's time to commit to making it work what's well, the take on all of that yeah i mean what's really interesting about all of these sort of fluctuating compatibilities and incompatibilities that we have with everybody is um, for my first book that I wrote before the breakup monologues that was called Is Monogamy Dead? And I was looking at investigating this kind of construct of monogamy, where it comes from, how it works, what it even means, because it actually means so many different things to so many different people. We assume we know what it means. It's this universal black and white, but actually, you know, um, culturally, originally monogamy meant one marriage for life. It comes from the Greek monoskamos, whereas what we tend to mean now is one marriage at a time. And, you know, like a fly was, a lot of people are very serially monogamous. 
Um, but I think if you think about monogamy in a more creative way, you can then think about the fact that your partner doesn't meet every single one of your needs. And you actually do, even if it's not having sexual partners outside of your primary sexual partnership and romantic partnership, it might be that you do meet emotional needs with different people, with different friends, or even actually celebrating and valuing time on your own and celebrating and enjoying that. And I think in our culture, where we sort of idealise romantic relationships so much, there's too much pressure on actually doing everything with your partner 24 hours of the day, 24-7, you know, and, and sleeping next to them in a bed every night. You know, I talk about actually claiming your space and having a separate night in a separate room sometimes. Yeah. is such a healthy thing. Yeah. It's so taboo. It's like, well, obviously we're not having sex. I, I find if we go and have a night's sleep, we're probably more likely yeah. <laughs> to have sex the next night. It's I mean, got a bit of energy. I mean, funny I was actually having a conversation with somebody like who's entering a relationship with somebody, um, a new relationship, and having been single for a while, going, actually, I really love my own bed. I really sleep well by myself. Do I have to give up my good quality sleep to have a relationship with somebody? I've actually I shared the statistics from the beginning of your book about the number of people who say, you know, all things considered, I would rather sleep by myself. And for those people... Although I do say that survey was done by a bed company. Just by myself. Twice as many beds, right? I might have invested in selling more beds. But yeah, I think that's a really helpful kind of perspective that you know, relationships do work in all sorts of different ways. And the idea that one person completely meets all of your needs, emotional, psychological, physical, social, all these kinds of different ways that we, we want to be in relationship with people, such an enormous expectation on another human being. Yeah. So I guess if there was, you know, taking all that in, if there was one partner in a relationship that wanted to continue sometimes having a drink, if one person had given up completely, maybe they'd do that with a, a different friend. And, and that's totally healthy and, and totally fine. So I think you can you can go on separate journeys some of the time and, and come back together again and support one another through whatever's going on. But I do think actually seeking different spaces to be different parts of yourself is a really happy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, one of the other things that I I hear a lot is about, you know, relationships that are under such significant strain that being with this person, you know, when, when it seems that your partner is more committed to alcohol than they are to you, you know, and you are, and you're struggling with that. Um, how people come to a conclusion that actually, however long I've had invested in this, this is a relationship that I need to bring to an end and kind of grappling with the pain of that. What, what from the podcast, from your writing, from your book, from your own experience, what would you speak into that situation for somebody who's going, we're just reaching the end of the road? Yeah, I think you've got to be probably more conscious and self-aware than, than I was in the relationship where I ended, get, getting, ended up getting dumped by email because actually there was so much that was so incredibly painful for so long in that relationship, um, mostly concerning her secrecy and shame around the relationship, although um, I, do, I do joke that she did once tell me her parents had quite enjoyed the film Brokeback Mountain. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a great sense how gay relationships could turn out. But also, uh, both her and her brother had you know, had quite a problematic relationship with, with alcohol. And in particular, her brother, who was actually living with um, my partner for a lot of the time of the relationship, and she 
um, would often seem absolutely terrified about where he was, what he was doing, what state he was in, whether he would live through the night if he hadn't come home. Um, and, you know, he was one of the reasons she couldn't come out because she sort of felt she didn't want to put other burdens and pressure on, on her family. But then sometimes, secretly, she would have a night where she went off on a bender and there was one time when actually I'd come down to do a comedy gig at the Comedia in Brighton and I saw a friend called Beth who my partner had told me she was going to be with that weekend. She was like, oh, I'm going off to stay with Beth. I was like, cool, no problem. Um, and anyway, Beth was at the gig and I was like, oh, is it this for you this weekend? No. Uh, she had decided she wanted to go and drink and not tell me about it and, and that was a kind of secret she wanted to keep from me and I, yeah, I really struggled with that um, but I did sort of let her back into my life and I, I think it was more the secrecy around it that was so hard to, to deal with and the fact that you sort of lied to me about where you were and who you were with because you wanted to just, you know, drink and drink and, and be completely out of it and you know, I, I sort of, if you, you know, if I'd known that she did want to sort of do that and, and felt so needed doing that and, and sort of perhaps all at sea, you know, I wish she just had been able to talk to me, I suppose, rather than sort of have a secret about what she was doing and lie to me and then to cause extra hurt because of the deceit around it. Uh, but it is incredibly difficult, I think, to talk about and... Yeah, I didn't completely understand that at the time because I was annoyed that she'd lied. And so I guess we didn't communicate properly about why she had needed to to drink that night. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard, isn't it? And I think what I've done is to try and get better at communicating about all kinds of relationship issues and just being really sort of upfront and open and honest. And I've had to put myself way out of my comfort zone to do that, even sort of doing things like going and performing comedy at a sex party, where you sort of, you know, have to sign up to loads of really conscious rules um, when you go in about how you're going to treat one another and respecting one another's boundaries. Um, and, but I think that's really, it's really good to sort of consciously declare rules like this and boundaries in a way that you sort of have to when you're doing something as extreme as going to a sex party but we just sort of make assumptions in the rest of our lives about oh it'll be all right it doesn't matter if we don't talk about it whereas I, I quite liked this refreshing approach <laughs> of sort of exploring the worlds of polyamory and thinking differently about relationships because it made me think about you know, my monogamous life and, and how to um, sort of import these values and I think you know, thinking about communicating about anything, about alcohol and drugs, you know, I think there's the same kind of principle of, of just, you know, real, real honesty and um, respect and, and trust in one another. And, and I think if you feel safe talking to somebody, um, you know, then then hopefully that will be more easily facilitated. I mean, I mean it does never cease to amaze me how uh, many people in relationships I observe who seem really unable to have even very basic conversations with their partner about 
what it is that they need, what it is that they want, where they hope the relationship is going. You know, when I, you know, I kind of reflect on kind of more on kind of kind of a very kind of traditional heterosexual view of, of marriage. But, you know, when people are going through marriage preparation, one of the questions that the vicar will ask you is, what are your thoughts about children? And I can think, if you're waiting for six weeks before your wedding, before a total stranger <laughs> asks you whether you might want to reproduce with a person that you're in a relationship, how is it that you can get that deep into a relationship that you're willing to spend £20,000 on a dress, but you still haven't decided whether you're having kids together or not? I, just, I find that totally mind-boggling. <laughs> isn't it um yeah and when i was researching the first book i actually asked a question on an, an, on an anonymous online survey asking what counts as cheating but also asking people if they discussed monogamy and what it meant to them and people could write in comments and there were so many that were along the lines of oh no no you know it's not possibly talk about it um, and, <laughs> I mean I'm sh- I don't know if that woman actually spoke like that in my head <laughs> um, but yeah it's incredible how little we communicate about love and how little we've been trained to communicate about love and relationships there's sort of no real I mean we get you know biology kind of sex ed lessons uh, which are terrible um, and, and you know I did one of my comedy shows was an attempt to reclaim that and, and do all the kind of queer and out there stuff that I've never learned or not even been allowed to learn because section 28 was in Boston when I was at school and, and university um, so yeah so I, I think um, we just haven't been trained properly to, to communicate about relationships and I think we we need to seek help with that and sort of start to train ourselves which is sort of what I've done through <laughs> through writing books and doing comedy shows and talking to people interviewing people on my podcast and immersing myself in real life experiments sometimes like um, there's a chapter in the book where I go and participate in a sex lab um, which is an interesting read as well um, but another thing actually about one point that um, was interesting about the sex party that I went to and all the sort of sex positive events that I went to was the relative lack of alcohol consumption mm. um, because I think people were just, you know, high on an alternative yeah. drug in the sense, you know, kind of flirtation, physical touch, intimacy, not necessarily always full on, yeah. you know, sexual activity, but, but you know, kind of just flirting, kissing and yeah, that produces beautiful chemicals and makes us feel wonderful in, in a whole other way. And I think there are lots of ways when we when we are coming out of a relationship and effectively withdrawing from an addictive drug drug because our partner um, does trigger the release of, of an opiate actually, beta endorphin. And so when we're coming off a relationship, we're effectively com- coming off a drug. Um, and there are lots of ways that you can sort of replenish good levels of happy chemicals in the brain i mean some of them are cliche like exercise eating well getting enough sleep but um you know i, I find spending time with my pets with our animals cats cat and dog and stroking pets and that kind of thing can release oxytocin which is a bonding chemical um even eating chocolate can release dopamine which is a feel-good chemical associated with our reward systems so you know there are lots of ways in which sort of laughing and comedy seeing friends dancing physical activity like that um, can all sort of boost levels of good chemicals in ways that don't necessarily rely on 
Um, yeah, changing how we draw. Yeah, and, and you know, actually, all very good uh, activities to do if you're changing relationship with um, alcohol and uh, looking for ways to feel. You know, whether you're in recovery from alcohol or a terrible relationship, it's all actually the same Similar. basic looking after yourself stuff, isn't yeah, it? And self-care. yeah, how do I learn to feel good? Um, one of the things you write about, um, you mentioned in the book, and I think this is a really useful insight to kind of reframe what's going on when you have a breakup because you know i think we we tell this story don't we about kind of breakups being disastrous world-ending experiences and we kind of push them off into a different category of of life experience but you you talk a little bit about relationships and breakups being really two sides of the same coin and and we've talked a bit about about communication the importance of open communication relationships i wonder what else in podcast from your writing and your experience you've heard about what you think makes relationships work real hard work I think and that's why I'm trying to be super honest about that in the book and the sort of the challenges and the ups and downs of being with somebody and you know there's a chapter um, <laughs> I talked about sort of hormonal cycles just briefly earlier it's a chapter called hormonal hell where my now wife and I are on a uh, cramped little boat on this holiday trying to navigate locks and um, we've got this sort of dog barking and not, neither of us know how to open the gates and the locks and we're having terrible time and we're both, we're both very hormonal and due on our periods and we're just squabbling all the time in this tiny little sort of boat that's a bit like a 1970s caravan with tiny birds made for tiny, tiny people, even tinier than us and, <laughs> and there's you know, this sort of threadbare carpet and a TV with a coat hanger, you know, like you used to have like a million years ago and um, yeah so I try to sort of set out those times when you're really not getting on and it takes real hard work to get through those but I think if you consciously and actively know you've chosen this person and you actively know that they are a good person and and they want the best for you and you do want to continue to be with this person you can I think find the energy to to keep putting that work in even when Certainly, there are dramatic moments where you think, "Right, that's it. I'm, I'm not being spoken to about that. I'm going to leave. I'm packing my bags." And then you think, "No, but what about the dog?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's. I think it's really good. You mentioned about kind of consciously choosing to be in relationships. You know, I, you know, I look at uh, friends around me, other people I interact with. A number of people you seem not to have ever consciously chosen to be in a relationship with this other human being and suddenly wake up one morning discovering there's another person that they've seemed to have shared 10 years of their life with. And, and how did that happen? Does anyone remember how that started? You know, that, that's, that actually can be quite a, a disconcerting experience when the light bulb goes on and you realise well, we've been together a really long time and I don't know why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I do think about um, just sort of conscious and active choices a lot more now. Particularly, as I suppose I've thought about um, kind of breakup strategies like conscious uncoupling, which you know is famously been uh, made popular by Gwyneth Paltrow using that phrase. Although I do think the sort of concept of conscious uncoupling existed a long, long time before. 2014 <laughs> when she kind of broke the internet um so yeah i think that that sort of idea of you know choosing to end your relationship but 
celebrating the good bits and, and sort of having an ongoing connection is good. And in the same way, I think you can choose to stay in your relationship. But like you say, I mentioned in the book how those two things are sort of almost intertwined. Like I wrote that little bit when I was looking up at the um, stems of ivy that are sort of creeping up the side of our neighbour's house and sort of encroaching on our, our bedroom window, window and slightly obscuring our view and how sometimes these strands of our relationships slightly obscure our view of ourselves and can cloud our conception of, of what's going on and we do sort of like you say wake up and maybe we've done a spot of pruning and we can see clearly and think oh yeah what, what are we doing what's happening uh, what choices have we made um, but I think you can still then make anxious anxious active not anxious well you might make anxious choices that's that's probably the problem um, active choices to stay or maybe the relationship form may, may alter um but yeah, I think I think those sort of conscious choices are, are really important. Um, we have some time for questions, comments, reflections. Um, as I've said, we are recording this sort of podcast. I'm really happy to edit any of this out. So if you've got questions you want to um, ask Rosie, uh, comments, reflections, what you heard, love to hear them. Fabulous. I just, I guess, um, uh, uh, final bit of personal advice, if that's all right. Um, so I find myself, uh, I find myself single. I've been single for some time, and one of the one of the challenges that I realise this is at the other end of the spectrum for the breakup. But I think it comes down to the conscious communication um, bit right at the beginning. Um, is that I drink vanishingly rarely, and entering relationships with people and not being clear about what their relationship is with the substance. Is actually really surprisingly tricky to navigate. Um, and I wonder um, for anyone who's right at the beginning, like I am, of uh, thinking about dating again, putting myself out in the world, building relationships, how you can build that kind of open communication, whether it's about alcohol or monogamy or anything else, right from the very beginning. How do you begin that with somebody who maybe hasn't been in a position of thinking, talking very actively about the kind of relationship that I want isn't something that I've ever done before. How do you how do you begin to broach those kinds of subjects with essentially somebody who's a who's a newbie to the world of conscious relationships? Um well, yeah. Um I mean I would say one thing you, you might do is actively choose someone who is more familiar with with you know, with that with that world, um, and, and it depends sort of where you're socialising and what groups you're networking in, and maybe you know you would seek somebody who shares some of those interests and values. Um, but uh, you know, when I met my wife, actually, it was interesting because she we'd got some very similar experiences, but I had started going on this real journey of questioning relationships and choices and communication around relationships and. I guess it, we were forced to talk about it on our very first date because I said I was writing a book and she said, what's it called? And I said, is monogamy dead? <laughs> so, that, you know... That's nailing your colours to the fence, isn't I that? know, and I said, well, look, I don't think it is dead and I just think it needs re-investigating and re-evaluating. And so I think we sort of had to, and I think to some extent you've got to force yourself to talk about these things even though as I say within our culture it's so difficult we kind of cloud everything in humour and jokes and sort of innuendo and uh, you know particularly in, in our British culture you know the sort of carry on kind of wink wink we don't want to talk about sex or we don't want to talk about addiction or we don't want to talk about you know our dark times or, or the sort of darker sides of our our personalities um, 
But I do think, well, probably the key thing that I think laid the groundwork for a healthy relationship with my wife is that when we first met, we were both briefly, and, and not for that long actually, we were both seeing a therapist, a separate therapist. Um, not, not a therapist together. I mean, that'd be weird, wouldn't it? But no. actually, that could work too. You could just say, well, let's go and see a therapist together to, to, to lay the groundwork and lay the groundwork. That, that could be really good to sort of work things out right, right from the get-go. Um, but I imagine suggesting that on the first date. That, that's the point, I think, so if you attend the bio, yeah, yeah, re- well, you, will, you will be required to come with a couple of therapy yeah, from the first date. Yeah, okay. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm still a bit sceptical about Tinder, but I did meet my, um, my wife on Line on a, a site called Plenty of Fish, and I was really surprised because I I am so cynical about about dating websites. I'm really like no no no, we don't work. It's not like this. in real life. It's so manufactured. But I did I did meet my wife on on a website. Um, although I do have a fun story about when I was doing dating websites for many many years before that and finding it absolutely hideous. And I was once on a site that sends you your, your ideal matches. And it just sent uh, my own profile back to me. <laughs> but even then, even then, I was only a 73% man. <laughs> I didn't even please myself that much. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, Sorry, can I, I missed the questions there a minute ago. I was wondering to ask you a bit like, I think in the book when I through it, there was one about um, the breakup of friendship. So not the romantic friendship, but you know how deep our friendships can be. And one goes wrong, and you, you just never see it. Or you know, the loss of a person. So I just want to throw you went without. Yeah, friendship breakups. A lot of people have responded to that chapter and says, "Oh my goodness, you know, we don't recognise this as the same kind of loss. We don't have a social script for mourning those relationships." And yeah, I'm very much a believer that platonic relationships. When, particularly when they're long, long-lasting, some of which are obviously longer-lasting than our romantic relationships, uh, they are so incredibly precious and valuable. And if, if they do end, which they do sometimes for all kinds of reasons, sometimes, as you say, people's lives change, people grow apart because their priorities or interests alter. Um, so friendships can, can break up and alcohol can certainly play a role in, in that. And... Yeah, it's it's. I think it's really hard to to get over, and I think we need to give ourselves the time and space to do that when a, a really significant friendship ends as well. And yeah, a lot of people have responded to that section in the book, so thank you for, for bringing that up. I mean, I think one of my other reflections about that is actually the role that social media has played in, in complicating that. You know, it used to be, I remember a world before Facebook. Um, oh, yes. That, I do remember. But it used to be that people could drift out of your life. Um, and then you'd encounter them five years later and you'd realise, oh, we haven't spoken. But now, you know, e- even the people that we're choosing not to be connected with can remain as this kind of ghostly presence on yeah, the edge of our lives yeah, where we know all about their cats and dogs and what their kids are doing <laughs> at school and, you know, all yeah. of these kinds of stuff. We, we, we remain implicated in the story of other people's lives even when we're trying to pull away from it and that could be a real challenge too. Yeah, definitely. Um, Facebook memories, I think, are a real problem because we're always confronted with, oh, this is what you were doing two years ago or five years ago. And yeah, it might be somebody who's no longer in your life and you might not want to have that memory pop up in a sort of happy, clappy, cheerful way. Thank you, Facebook. Um, And it reminds me of there's another chapter of the book about what do breakups look like where I'm doing a workshop with a performance artist. And she says, I want you to do a thing that conveys heartbreak. 
and with the things in the room. And so I saw a, a, one of those old school envelopes of photos, like when you've got your photos printed out, you know, from Snappy Snaps or somewhere. And so I lay on the floor and just covered myself in the photos like I was sort of submerged in this avalanche of memories because I think that is how we can feel all the very happy memories of smiling and being happy together at parties can just overwhelm us and I think it is important I certainly know some um, psychotherapists who would say that being able to think about the negative memories as well and some of the negative consequences of being with that person is is really valuable as well as all the happy memories, which in time you will be able to celebrate, but but we need to remember that it wasn't all <laughs> happy and smiley, which Facebook likes to make us think it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can also be very confronting to be, to be presented with versions of your former self as well. Yeah. And the kinds of decisions that you used to make, and this was a, this is a happy, no, it's really not a happy memory at all. Um, so we're, we're coming towards the end of this. Um, uh, as you've mentioned, you're going to be signing copies of the book over on the club side of stand in the main festival area um, um, yeah sure. what I would say as well is um, uh, and, and if anyone does if they're not going to make it over there for some reason come and have a quick chat now but I've got copies of um, both of my books and this first one is actually incredibly rare and people are trying to get hold of it now and I do have a few copies of that here today and I can do a sort of double book deal if people wanted a copy of each and get it signed um, for £20 um, but we do have um, copies of just their breath analysis as well if people just want just um, want the new one or the latest one, as you said. Um, and, and in terms of people finding you online and what's coming up from you, what's coming up for you, um, how can people get more involved in the world yes. of Rosie Willoughby? Um, Rosie Willoughby. Will uh, it's be. all right. No, people <laughs> think of uh, TV presenter Holly Willoughby, um, but we're not related. No, I'm just a Willoughby, W-I-L-B-Y. In the world of Rosie Willoughby, what's yeah. coming up? Um, well, you can find me on Twitter at Rosie Willoughby, on Instagram at Breakup Monologues, and I'm very approachable and friendly there, so I'd love to hear from you. And yeah, the Breakup Monologues podcast is available online. Obviously, the book, if you are not able to get a copy today or if you're listening to the podcast indeed it's available in all good uh, book places online and, and in the real world and so yeah I will be recording more live episodes of the podcast at festivals throughout the summer so do keep a look out for that I do want to um, start developing a new book I've got some ideas but I do need to uh, <laughs> sell the remaining copies of this one first so <laughs> line up everyone um, no thank you it's been lovely to, to talk to you yeah. thank you Drew yeah thank you so much for being here Rosie Wilbur how was that then, Drew? I I think it's so helpful. You know, one of the big conversations that we have in the club soda community is where people are changing their relationship with alcohol. Maybe their partner isn't changing their relationship and feeling that tension appear in their um in their interpersonal relationships um where you're changing and the people around you aren't, whether that's your partner or your family or your friends or whoever. It can feel really stressful feeling like you're suddenly making yourself different from everyone else. And I think just the reminder that um, you don't need to meet all of your emotional needs with a single other person. You know, you can make friendships and find support and relationships beyond that primary relationship that you have with your partner. 
And that can really help you. Um, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing that suddenly you've changed your relationship with alcohol, your partner hasn't, and therefore your marriage is ending, heading towards divorce. You know, that that doesn't isn't the case. It doesn't have to be the case. No, there are so many more creative ways of dealing with yeah. the fact that you're changing and the people around you aren't. And I just I I I really encourage people to think beyond their relationships. Um, often the friendships that we have have been built around drinking too. And if you really sit back and go, well, well, what do I need in my life? Um, what types of people do I want? Um, what will enrich me and make me not only feel like I'm being a good friend to others, but others are being a good friend to me, then you might make some very different decisions. And friendships have been really important to me yeah. as I've changed my drinking and my friendships evolve and change over time. That's natural and also nothing to be afraid of. So all relationships are important. They're all on a spectrum of intimacy, mm-hmm. but they are most definitely a key part to your long-term happiness and sobriety yeah absolutely I, I know for myself that i've got friends who i had to step away from our friendship for a little while because a lot of the way that we used to hang out together was just centered around drinking together um and i want, didn't want to do that anymore they wanted to carry on doing that and that was awkward and uncomfortable but actually taking a break coming back talking about what matters to me what's important to me I've been able to remake some of those friendships in a way which is much more positive, not centered on drinking. So I think even if you do feel in a relationship, whether it's with a friend or a partner or anyone else, you need to step away for a little while to make some time for yourself to work out what's important for you. That's not necessarily the end of the road. You know, the other people in your life change as well. And you may find surprising new relationships emerging with people that you've struggled with in the past. So it's really, I, for me anyway, it's it's really important to to keep the door open. I mean, obviously not I in can those just, situations I, where you are. I can you see are. why, uh, why we're, we're both such fangirls, to be honest, because this is a subject <laughs> that we're both really interested in. I so I think we should basically stop talking now. Go and read Rosie's book. Yeah, go and, and read. Go um, and, read. Um, and then maybe you can hear Drew and myself pontificate on relationships more <laughs> in a future episode, because honestly... Um, for those of you that might not know, I met Drew dating. So, yeah. you know, we, we, we've we talked about this an awful lot. An awful lot. We could talk at length. I do actually want to say one final thing, which is really important, is that obviously what I've said about, you know, leaving the door open to relationships evidently doesn't apply in situations where you've been abused or where you don't feel safe in a relationship. It's really important that you are safe, secure, and that you look after yourself. I just want to kind of put that on the record as, a, you know, there are some hard lines in all of this really important um so thank you for joining our podcast you can find us at join club soda um on social and joinclubsoda.com on the website um do go back and listen to our previous episodes do subscribe and do let us know what else that you would like to hear thank you all cheers